Welcome to the February 20th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll examine how graft-versus-host disease in the colon is driven by an inflammatory cytokine produced by specialized donor T-cells, review a prospective multi-center study to assess the frequency and clinical relevance of low-level mutations in chronic myeloid leukemia, and learn about a potential new therapeutic that blocks the activity of the iron regulatory hormone erythropherone to reduce iron overload in thalassemia. First up, let's review the outcomes of an enlightening study by Piper and colleagues from the Medical College of Wisconsin. As described in their blood article, pathogenic BHL-HE40 positive, GM-CSF positive, CD4 positive T-cells promote indirect alloantigen presentation in the GI tract during GVHD. Both hematologists and immunologists will be interested to note that these authors clarified the role of a rare population of donor T-cells that produce GM-CSF, which activates dendritic cells and promotes intestinal graft-versus-host disease in mouse models of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant. These GM-CSF-producing T-cells provide a critical link between innate and adaptive immune responses. Acute graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, is the major cause of morbidity and mortality following allogeneic transplant, with pathological damage to the GI tract induced by inflammatory cytokines. Importantly, recent studies have implicated donor cell-derived GMCSF as a key driver of inflammation in gut GVHD. GMCSF, which stands for granulocyte macrophage colony-stimulating factor, is produced mainly by T-cells, and is sensed by myeloid cells. Emerging evidence suggests that a key physiologic role of GMCSF is to recruit dendritic cells to amplify immune responses. However, how GMCSF production is regulated during gut GVHD and the mechanisms by which it promotes inflammation within this tissue site remain incompletely understood. Piper and colleagues rose to this challenge. This group had previously identified a unique population of CD4-positive donor memory T-cells that orchestrated early inflammatory events in gut GVHD. These T-cells also expressed CD11C, gut-homing surface molecules, and genes associated with innate immune responses. As described in their current blood article, the authors discovered that these T-cells also expressed the transcription factor BHL-HE40, which governed their production of GMCSF. They also observed that GMCSF was not regulated by either IL-6 or IL-23, which are known to be potent inducers of colonic pathology in GVHD. This suggests that GMCSF constitutes a non-redundant inflammatory pathway in gastrointestinal GVHD. Mechanistically, GMCSF had no adverse effect on regulatory T-cell reconstitution, but instead enhanced the activation 
of donor-derived dendritic cells in the colon. In addition, Piper and colleagues revealed that these activated dendritic cells cross-present alloantigens, accelerating the activation of conventional T-cells in the colon. This result answers a long-standing question in the pathogenesis of gut GVHD. How are alloantigen-specific responses amplified in GVHD target tissues? GMCSF also increased recruitment of inflammatory myeloid cells to the colon. These events lead to generalized inflammation and cell damage in the colon and the clinical manifestations of GVHD. Thus, a thorough review of the outcomes using multiple complementary models of murine GVHD led these investigators to conclude that a population of CD4-positive T-cells, regulated by BHL-HE40, secretes GMCSF, and position GMCSF as a key regulator of GVHD in the colon, and a potential therapeutic target. Clinically, these results suggest that inhibition of GMCSF could augment protection from GVHD when coupled with additional strategies to block other cytokines, such as IL-6, and IL-23. To that end, mavrolimumab, an anti-GMCSF receptor alpha monoclonal antibody, and MOR-103, a humanized anti-GMCSF antibody, are already in clinical trials for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis, respectively. And since GMCSF is rarely used as a growth factor in recipients of allogeneic transplants, Another clinically viable approach to protect against GVHD could include therapies targeting the production of GMCSF. Finally, an accompanying commentary by Edmund Walker from Emory University highlights that this new study supports the emerging broader view of GMCSF as a key inflammatory cytokine involved in T-cell-mediated pathologies. Intriguing future topics to explore include the origin of these unusual CD4-positive, CD11C-positive T-cells that express a plethora of myeloid genes, whether a homologous population of GMCSF-secreting T-cells exists in humans, and whether pathogenic T-cells could be selectively depleted to reduce damaging inflammation. Conversely, using GMCSF to enhance anti-cancer immune responses in the tumor microenvironment could be a promising strategy in this alternative setting. Next, we explore data presented in the blood article entitled, Prospective Assessment of NGS Detectable Mutations in Chronic Myeloid Leukemia Patients with Non-Optimal Response, the next in CML study, by Savarini and colleagues, representing multiple centers across Italy. As described in the report, in patients with chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or TKIs, may select for drug-resistant BCR-ABL1 kinase domain mutants. Sanger sequencing is considered the gold standard for BCR-ABL1 kinase domain mutant screening. However, next-generation sequencing, or NGS, presents an appealing alternative. Kinase domain, or KD, mutations are identified in only about half of imatinib failure patients. But this may be an underestimate due to the limited sensitivity of Sanger sequencing. Although rapid and inexpensive, the mutation detection limit for this method 
is at 10 to 20% of allele frequency. In hopes of assessing the frequency and clinical relevance of lower-level mutations, as well as feasibility, cost, and turnaround times of NGS-based BCR-ABL1 mutation screening, Soverini et al. conducted a prospective, multi-center study called the Next in CML Study. The results suggest that this may be a promising approach. The study consisted of two consecutive phases. The first phase involved four expert laboratories in Bologna, Orbasano, Naples, and Catania that were already engaged in Sanger sequencing-based BCR-ABL1 kinase domain mutation screening and which shared a common protocol and developed a pipeline for analysis of BCR-ABL1 by NGS. The accuracy and reproducibility of the assay were confirmed in this phase. In the second phase, 236 consecutive CML patients were enrolled by 39 hematology centers all over Italy. Inclusion criteria were patients with molecular responses to TKI therapy documented as either failure or warning according to the European LeukemiaNet recommendations and positivity for either B2A2 or B3A2 BCR-ABL1 fusion transcripts. A peripheral blood sample was shipped to one of the four reference laboratories, and BCR-ABL1 KD mutation screening was performed in parallel by Sanger and next-generation sequencing. Two key points of this study are as follows. NGS provides a more accurate picture of BCR-ABL1 mutation status in CML patients with failure or warning responses to TKI therapy. The prospective monitoring of mutation kinetics also demonstrated that TKI-resistant low-level mutations invariably undergo selective expansion if the TKI is not changed or if an inappropriate TKI or TKI dose is chosen. In this study, Sanger sequencing identified KD mutations in 60, or 25%, of the 236 patients. An additional 51 patients who were negative for KD mutations by Sanger sequencing had low-level mutations detectable by NGS. Interestingly, NGS also identified additional low-level KD mutations in almost half of the patients already found to have KD mutations on Sanger sequencing. Overall, mutations undetectable by Sanger sequencing were identified in 34%, or 80 out of 236 patients. Importantly, in 42 patients, or 18% of the total number of patients, the low-level mutations were relevant for clinical decision-making. Thus, the NEXT-in-CML study provides for the first time robust demonstration of the clinical relevance of low-level mutations and supports the incorporation of results from NGS-based BCR-ABL1 kinase domain mutation screening in the clinical decision algorithms. Soverini et al. were able to provide sequencing results within a range of 7 to 24 days, as discussed in an accompanying commentary by Shanmuganathan and Hughes at the Royal Adelaide Hospital in Australia. This rapid turnaround time may currently be an impossible achievement for many laboratories. Furthermore, NGS costs of individual samples in a diagnostic setting could be high and require batch testing to reduce expense. This could delay obtaining an actionable result prior to overt treatment failure or disease progression.
Thus, prior to adoption of an NGS-based assay for KD mutation testing into mainstream diagnostics, these issues will need to be addressed by each institution intending to implement this approach. Assuredly, technology will improve, with NGS becoming less costly and more sensitive, potentially enough to detect mutations with an allele frequency of less than 3%. This prompts several questions. What actionable threshold level should trigger a TKI switch? Can we screen patients deemed high risk for failure at earlier time points, even prior to a warning response? Should we screen selected patients at diagnosis in hopes of detecting low-level actionable KD mutations? While these questions currently remain unanswered, the data reported by Sovereigny and colleagues strongly support the use of NGS in patients not achieving optimal molecular responses, with the goal of optimizing TKI selection and preventing overt resistance and progression. And finally, we examine the results of a study recently published in Blood, entitled Antibodies Against the Erythroferone N-Terminal Domain Prevent Hepcidin Suppression and Ameliorate Murine Thalassemia, presented by Arezis and colleagues from the MRC Human Immunology Unit and MRC Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine at the University of Oxford. Beta thalassemia is an inherited hemoglobinopathy present in approximately 1 in 100,000 individuals in the general population worldwide. Patients experience dysfunction or deletion of the beta-globin genes, leading to hemolytic anemia, ineffective erythropoiesis, and iron overload, which is a main cause of morbidity in these patients. Iron levels are normally regulated by erythropoietic demand via the iron regulatory hormones, hepcidin, produced in the liver, and erythroferone, or ERFI, which was discovered only five years ago. ERFI is produced by erythroblasts in response to erythropoietin. Hepcidin reduces iron uptake and recycling, but is suppressed by ERFI when there is an increased demand for more iron for the production of red blood cells. Thus, plasma ERFI levels are greatly increased in patients with beta-thalassemia and other anemias with ineffective erythropoiesis which then promotes tissue iron accumulation. In this illuminating study, in an effort to improve clinical outcomes, Arezis et al. identified the critical functional domain in ERFI and its target. They then developed monoclonal antibodies against this domain to block ERFI activity, thus preventing hepcidin suppression and reversing iron overload in a mouse model of beta-thalassemia. This team had previously shown that ERFI acts directly on signaling by bone morphogenetic proteins, or BMPs, the main pathway regulating hepcidin gene transcription. The author's strategies in the current study included showing that ERFI bound directly to different BMPs with strongest binding to BMP6. This was a key observation since the mechanism of action of ERFI had been a mystery and prior studies had failed to identify an ERFI receptor they next determined that the N-terminal domain of ERFI, containing a collagen-like motif, is the bioactive region of ERFI, as a polypeptide derived from this region was sufficient to suppress hepcidin in a liver hepatoma cell line and in mice. They then developed neutralizing anti-ERFI monoclonal antibodies 
by immunizing ERFI knockout mice with full-length ERFI. They identified antibodies that exclusively bound to the N-terminal domain of ERFI and showed that these prevented ERFI-mediated hepcidin suppression, both in liver cell lines in vitro and erythropoietin-treated mice in vivo. Finally, they established that administration of antibodies binding to the N-terminal domain of ERFI reduced iron burden and alleviated anemia in a mouse model of beta-thalassemia. As noted in an accompanying commentary by Gans from the University of California, Los Angeles, erythroferone is active at picomolar concentrations, making it an ideal target for monoclonal antibody therapy. Supporting the feasibility of this approach, generally similar results were also obtained by another group who developed a different set of ERFI-neutralizing antibodies. A puzzling effect of the anti-erythroferone antibodies found in the study by Aresis and colleagues is that the antibodies also improved anemia in thalassemic mice in addition to iron overload, which was not seen when the ERFI gene was ablated in mice. It is possible that complete loss of ERFI throughout life results in some form of compensation that is absent when ERFI is neutralized by antibodies in adult mice. Finally, the identification of BMP proteins as the target of ERFI raises another intriguing possibility that may have therapeutic benefit. Given the broad importance of BMP signaling in many organs and tissues, neutralizing the high levels of ERFI seen in iron-loading anemias may ameliorate some of the non-hematologic manifestations also seen in these disorders. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.